All right. We are back in Ephesians. Um, this is the second to last movement of the whole letter here in Ephesians. So next Sunday will be the conclusion to the whole letter. Pretty exciting. It definitely exciting for me. Um, so last week we started on this movement, which starts in Ephesians chapter five, verse 21, and the movement goes all the way through, uh, chapter six, verse nine. This is Paul's household code. Uh, last week when we started though, in order to talk about that, we had to back up, remember to verse 18, because there's a sentence that begins in verse 18. And that doesn't end until we get to verse 24. At least that's uh, what it is in the translation that we're using, which led us into a conversation about different translations and how uh, ancient Greek is not an easy one-to-one conversion to English. So a lot of times translation committees have to decide on an interpretation for a set of verses before they can bring that into English. And different translations interpret different things um, different ways. So it's important to not just stick with one translation, but look at different ones and be mindful of how they are different from each other and what those interpretations are. We talked last week a lot about culture, so much about culture, and how Paul's illustration of the household um, is, a, is adapted for the right now, not yet. He, these people are a new creation. They're in this household together, husbands and wives, fathers and children, masters and slaves. Um, in Jesus, they're a new creation. They relate to each other in a way that is totally new. At the same time, they still have to exist here on earth in the culture that they're in. So Paul's adapting the um, household codes of the ancient Greco-Roman culture for the right now, not yet, for how those people are supposed to live. So that's what we went over last week. This week, we're going to be in the same movement, but we're going to finish it up today. Kind of work our way through um, more of these just specific verses. A couple points I want to touch on before I start working my way through. I've said over and over again that Paul is adapting the household code of um, what we read last week. Remember Aristotle and all of those things. He's adapting that. And there's a couple ways I could point out really quick how he is adapting that just to get started. First of all, when Paul's giving this household code, he instructs the people that were subordinates in the household first. So the wives, the children, and the slaves. He gives them the instruction first. And that really stands out. It actually stands out that he gives them any instruction at all. Remember, we talked about household codes were just written for patriarchs. But here, Paul speaks directly to the people that were subordinates in these households. And he tells them to be an active participant in the new humanity. And to come from a place of willingness rather than a place of, well, this is just your lot that you've been assigned. To imagine what it must have been like for these people is, it's tough to do, but we can try. So these subordinates are in this low status in the culture that they're in. They they don't have a lot of worth on their own. And then to meet Jesus, your Savior, your Messiah, and to know that you have a value and an identity and a worth that does not correspond to what the culture and the world says about you. 
to have Jesus tell you that you're an imager of God, that he loves you and that you are fully known. And even though you're fully known, he still loves you, not because of things that you've done, but because he is love, that he died for you. To come from that place of value, that foundation, and then willingly decide out of reverence for Jesus to place yourself under someone else in humility is completely different than just their traditional subjugation. Now, from the outside, it might not have looked all that different in terms of behaviors or what people saw, but I can tell you that it probably meant the world to them to come from a place of self-agency, some sort of power and value, and decide to give up your life for someone else. That is so much different from this is just your station because of your assigned worth that you're under these people. This is something totally different. In order to really lay down your life for someone else, you have to have some kind of power to do it. You have to have some kind of agency over your own life. There's a principle that says, if you can't say no, you can never really say yes. And if you think about that for a moment, it's so powerful. They were finally coming from a place of real value and freedom that no one could ever take away from them because it had been given to them by their Savior. They had a new identity. So to come from that place and willingly in humility set yourself under someone else is something completely new and different. That must have been really powerful. A second way that Paul adapts this household code. Um, As I mentioned before, the traditional household codes were written to patriarchs on how to manage subordinates to benefit themselves and to maintain the stability of the Roman Empire. Remember, I talked about the household is a microcosm of the Roman Empire, and the stability of the empire itself is built on all of these little households functioning just as they are supposed to do. Well, here in Paul's code, all three relationships of the patriarch to his wife, to his children, and to his slaves um, are totally redefined. The foundation is redefined. Instead of being a ruler and just a patriarch over them, he's instructed to become an agent of love and self-giving toward them. That is something that is completely different, a radical shift from how they were usually guided in this culture. That's a couple ways that he's adapting this household code for these um, believers living together. So let's look, let's start breaking all of this down by looking at verse 23 here. Actually, you know what? I want to read through this whole section again. Let's do that. Um, Just to kind of refresh our memory on where we're at. I know we read through it last week and it's kind of long, but let's do that just to get the whole thing in our minds again. We'll start in verse 21. Submitting to one another in reverence of the Messiah, wives to their own husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife as the Messiah is head of the church, the deliverer of the body. But as the church submits to the Messiah, so also wives submit to their husbands in every way. Husbands, be loving your wives, 
as the Messiah loves the church and gave himself on her behalf so that he could set her apart, having purified by washing of water with a word, so he could present the church to himself, glorious, having no stain or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be set apart and blameless. In this way, the husbands are obligated to love their own wives as their own bodies. The one who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but he raises and nurses it, just as Messiah does for the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave the father and mother, and he will be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This open secret is great, but I am speaking about the Messiah and the church. Nevertheless, each one of y'all should love his own wife in this way, and the wife should revere her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise, so that it may go well for you, and you will be in the land a long time. And fathers, do not provoke your children, but raise them in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your masters according to the flesh, with serious reverence in sincerity of your heart, as to the Messiah, not as human pleaser doing eye service, but as slaves of the Messiah, doing the will of God from your very being, with good will, serving as to the Lord, not to humans, knowing that each person, whatever good he might do, that one will receive from the Lord, whether a slave or a free man. And masters, do the same things to them, giving up threats, knowing that their Lord and your own is in the heavenlies, and there is no favoritism with him. All right, let's back up. Let's go back to verse 23. And I've kind of singled it out here because I want to show you how this is structured and what Paul was communicating here. We talked back in chapter four about the meaning of the word head. In Greek, this word is kephale. And we talked about it here in these verses. Kephale does not have the same range of meaning in the Greek language that head does in the English language. Primarily, it doesn't have that primary connotation of authority like our English word head does have. We talked about how head here in Ephesians 4 primarily means source. Let me read this to you. We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, that is Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So the key couple words to focus on here when we're talking about source are from whom. So it's from Jesus, the head, that the whole body proceeds. It's where the body gets its power to grow, to build itself up in love, to become mature. And this is echoed in Colossians 1.18 here, where it says, He also, Jesus, the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. So you can see there that it's echoed in Colossians as well. The meaning here is similar to our English words like headwaters or trailhead. From that beginning, everything flows. That is the source for everything after it. So Jesus is the head of the church. 
So this particular verse here in verse 23 is really specifically structured. And I like the way that this Bible project graph has broken it down. The whole verse is laid out, laid out here in these boxes. The husband is the head of his wife as the Messiah is the head of the church. He being the savior of the body. You can really see the structure there. So Paul's taken two lines in the beginning, the husband and the Messiah, and he's paired them together. What he wants us to do is compare their similarities. He wants us to compare them to each other. And then the third line is different. This is something different. He's using a grammatical method here called a position. I'm going to read the definition right off the page so that I get it right. A position is the placing of a word or phrase beside another so that it further explains the first word or phrase. So Paul is talking about these two things being ahead here. And this third line is going to shed light on what he means by head in the first two lines. So if Paul wanted to communicate that the husband is to be the authority or the ruler over the wife, this would have been the perfect place to do it. Instead, we find that Paul says, he being the savior of the body. Another way to translate this would be he being the deliverer of the body. This is the word that he chooses to use. Um, Instead of using this ruler or authority kind of language, he then goes into a description of the Messiah giving himself up for the church. So rather than being called the ruler, the husband here is called to be the savior, the deliverer of his wife, the lifter of her head, the source of life and nourishment. And a husband being a source or a deliverer for his wife in this culture was a socioeconomic reality. In this ancient Greco-Roman culture, you had girls that were teenagers being given in marriage to men that were established and in their 20s and 30s. Um, There was no way for those girls, those women, to be a source for themselves. Say that um, you were one of these women and you came to know the Lord and you knew that you were a new creation and you knew that you had value apart from what the culture said about you. Say that you just wanted to 100% live that out. And you were just going to throw off the yoke of all this cultural stuff and live as you truly are and be your own source. Getting out of a marriage or that cultural structure, even though it would have been like leaving a prison, it's almost like that prison is on a boat. And if you're going to bail out of that prison, you're just jumping into the middle of the ocean and watching the boat sail away. Like there was no way for a woman to be her own source in that culture. So rather than using his power and his position to benefit himself, the husbands here were to become a source of life for their wives who had no way to derive that for themselves in this culture. And this also makes perfect sense when we consider the Greek medical understanding of our physical heads. Uh, They saw the head as providing everything for the body's existence. Um, Obviously, know that without a head, people die. But um, they really saw the head as um, being 
the source of air, food, water, everything that the body needs to exist. And it's true that in this culture, the patriarch makes it possible for his wife to live. He is truly the source for her to live. Do you remember um, the curse from Genesis 3? Part of the curse for Eve was your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. This culture was great at living that out. I mean, this was happening everywhere. This is the way that they lived. So to see such a powerful illustration of that curse being broken because of what Jesus did and these people's lives being redefined and then being taught how to live by the spirit and how to love each other in this self-giving way, how to submit and set themselves under one another was completely revolutionary. It's the beginning of the reversal of that broken curse happening in these households. And it's truly, really incredible. This submitting to one another willingly out of reverence to the Messiah is really awesome. So after Paul finishes this section here on the head, he goes into um, a description of what the Messiah does for the church. He sets her apart, presents her to himself. He sets her apart. He cleanses her. When you get down to verse 29 here, so he goes into all of this body language here. In this way, the husbands are obligated to love their own wives as their own bodies. The one who loves his own flesh loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but he raises and nurses it, just as Messiah does for the church, because we are members of his body. So this translation uses the words in verse 29, he raises and nurses it. When we're talking about the raising part, other translations say that he nourishes his own body, or he feeds it. In the Greek, the definition for this word it means to bring to maturity. And that's definitely what Jesus does for the church. Um, in chapter 4, verse 13, we hear all about how he equips the body, how he raises it to maturity. Uh, verse four, or chapter 4, verse 13 says, Until we all attain unto the unity of the faith and unto the knowing of the Son of God, unto a mature man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of the Messiah, so Jesus definitely raises the church. And so in this comparison, husbands are called to raise their wives, to bring them to a place of maturity in their new identity. That is really powerful. And he says also that he uh, not only raises, but he nurses his own body. And that's what this translation say. Most translations say that he cherishes his body or he cares for his body. Let me tell you how helps word studies defines this word in the Greek. They define it as to warm, warm someone up or revive their health by nourishing and nurturing. This word is associated with a mother nursing her child the same word is used in 1 Thessalonians 2.7 when Paul says, We proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children in the same way we had a fond affection for you. 
These two tasks, raising and nursing, were associated with the low status of the domestic sphere that women served in. Yet Paul attributes them to Jesus himself. Paul attributes these tasks that had no honor to Jesus, the Messiah himself. And he also applies them to the husbands in these very patriarchal households. So if you can imagine a family being in one of these house churches and having this letter read aloud to them, you have the husband and his wife, the children, perhaps the slaves came with them as well. And they're all hearing this reading of these traditional female duties being applied to the king that they worship and to the patriarch of their household. I'm guessing that there are some people in that room that would blush. I almost do when I even try to put myself there to hear these things described as the role of the patriarch of this house must have been very, very powerful. As Paul goes on, he gets down here to verse 31, and he quotes from Genesis 2, 24. For this reason, a man will leave the father and mother, and he'll be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Remember in Genesis 2 is where we have the account of woman being taken out of man as the rib, which is another illustration of Paul's meaning of the word head as source. She was taken from him. They are one body. And I like the way that the notes for this Bible project class sum this up. I think this is good. The wife is the husband's body. So what he does for her, he does to himself. Because she is him and he is her by virtue of their body-head relationship. So they are one. What he does to her, he does to himself. He treats her as his own body. And then after Paul says all of these incredibly dense and amazing things, he shows us that this whole time he's been talking about more than one thing. In verse 32, he says, this open secret is great. That's our Greek word mysterion. A lot of your translations will say this mystery is great. <laughs> but I am speaking about Messiah and the church. There are layers to this. There's a depth here that when we start to interpret this, we want to try to understand the depth. There's more than one thing being talked about. And how does that affect how we interpret this set of verses? So there's a lot going on in this section. After this, Paul goes on to talk about this parent-child relationship. He says to children, he actively instructs them and encourages them to willingly participate in their household. He says to them uh, a commandment to honor their mother and father. And then he follows it with a quote from the Old Testament so that it may go well for you and you will be in the land a long time. And then fathers are instructed in how to relate to their children, which also was primarily a domestic duty of the wife. He says, don't provoke them. And I was curious about this. I wondered if provocation was a particular problem in this culture, um, something to look into. 
And uh, there's this quote from the pulpit commentary. It turns out that it seems like it was. They say that the irritation of children was common through loss of temper and violence in reproving them, through capricious and unsteady treatment and unreasonable commands. So Paul's telling them, don't do that. Don't behave as the culture around you, but instead raise them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. Relate to them in such a way that you actually have to have a relationship with them to teach them how to come up in all of these things. So he goes on to talk about slaves and masters. And this is where, I'll remind you again, we see that Paul was not a social revolutionary, but that he was changing the foundations of how these people all live together. He's telling them that everyone is established in grace, that everyone is established in the same gift, that no one earned it because of their merit or because of their social status or their power or their wealth or their gender or anything, but that everyone is established in the same grace. He is not operating from an ideology of equality. He's not operating from a human perception of wouldn't it be great if everyone was just equal. That's not what he is doing here. He's giving them wisdom on this whole new category. He's giving them wisdom on how to live as the new creation. So after all of that, what we talked about last week and what we talked about this week, I really hope that you can see how important, how vital cultural context is as we read these verses. Our culture is so fundamentally different from what theirs was. And we can all try to understand our biases. We can try to understand what is the filter or the lens that I look through when I see the world. What's the filter or the lens I look through when I read my Bible? And you can get down into some layers of that and begin to identify your own perceptions, and how they color what you read. But on a certain level, that stuff, you're immersed in it. And you can't unpack all of it. Some of it is just there. So the best we can do is we try to take a look at their culture and see how these words would have affected them. Ultimately, at the end of the day, I think that this was radical and liberating for the people in these households. It was an incredible new way to live. Also, at the end of the day, there's two views on this. And everyone gets to choose which view they have. And you're still my brother or sister, no matter what, even if your view is different from mine. I thought I'd wrap this up with uh, just a couple of thoughts from my perspective. So take that with a grain of salt. Here's my thoughts on this. If you're going to adhere to a literal reading of this portion of scripture, you almost have to, just to a plain reading, like these are the steps, this is what I'm going to do. You almost have to recreate the whole culture that this was a part of to even make that possible. If you're going to hold to a literal interpretation, what do you do about masters and slaves? It's almost like you have to recreate or go be a part of a culture where that's a thing so that you can hold to that literal interpretation so that you can have a slave to treat in this way. And if that part 
is outmoded, then why isn't the rest? I feel like these are questions we have to ask ourselves because we quickly are ending up back at the pick and choose problem that I talked about in session one of Ephesians where there's these cultural things and some of them were like, well, this still stands. This one's still good, but this one over here is outmoded and we know that we don't need to do that anymore. So we end up just this picking and choosing and it, the application is varied at best. I do believe that there are so many valuable guiding principles and so much wisdom here that we could adhere to right now. We submit to one another and we submit to the work of the spirit as he brings about the character of Christ in each of us. And as he brings about the character of Christ in our homes, as we all look to Jesus as our Messiah and out of reverence for him, we walk in humility toward one another. I think that that's a beautiful way to live. I think that that proclaims his victory to the people in our homes and to the people around us. We have to rely on the word and the spirit together to bring about new illustrations of what a household dedicated to the kingdom looks like, what a marriage dedicated to the kingdom looks like and how that functions. It is not anarchy. It is not disorder. That's not what it is. It is the spirit filled life every day lived out and these people. Some guiding verses that I think are awesome and parallel what we've read in Ephesians. And this is an instruction to the whole body. And I've used these verses at times where I've recognized in myself that I am struggling to have humility or that I'm struggling to have compassion. In general, that I'm just struggling to live like Jesus. I've meditated on these verses and it has helped me to recenter myself and to set myself under the people around me. So I'm just going to read those to you to finish and offer this to you as a way to live your life in your home with your family. So this is Colossians 3, 12 through 17. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, Holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, and let the peace of Christ to which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the value and the identity that you give each of us, Lord. 
that you see each of us, that we're fully known and we're fully loved. That is such a safe place to be. It's such a place of rest and peace. We thank you that we get to dwell there. Lord, as we live our lives with those we're most intimate with, help us to see them as the same, as having value before you, as being lovely, cherished. Lord, help us to lift up others before ourselves. Help us to place the interests of others before we seek our own, Lord. And above all, we just surrender to you and pray that you would transform us. You would bring about the humility of Christ in each of us, Lord. And that we would just love in a self-giving way, boldly, no matter where we are, in front of whoever may be there, Lord. Help us to walk as you walked, Lord. Thank you, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.